Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio. As part of our Open Future season, we're asking, should Britain vote again on Brexit? Our guest is the former Prime Minister, Tony Blair, a proponent of a second referendum on whether the United Kingdom should leave the European Union. He was the special representative of the Quartet of International Powers, seeking a peace agreement between Israel and the Palestinians. And today he runs the Institute for Global Change, advocating for the benefits of globalisation. He still finds himself drawn into heated debate on his support for George Bush and the war in Iraq, with all its consequences. Tony Blair, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you. We're meeting a very exciting time in terms of British politics. Some people think too exciting. Calls for a second referendum on leaving the EU are in the air. Just lay out your position on that for me. So I've said for quite some time now there should be another vote, which isn't a rerun, by the way, of the 2016 referendum. It will be a judgment on what we've learned in the last two years and how we resolve the essential dilemma at the heart of the Brexit negotiation, which is that if you want to stay close to Europe after Brexit, you're going to end up in some form of arrangement where you're abiding by Europe's rules, but you've just lost your say over them in which case the argument will be, well, what's the point of leaving? Or alternatively, you're going to be where a lot of the hardline Brexiteers want us, which is with a clean-break Brexit, where you get out of Europe, out of its single market and custom union structures, in which case you're going to do short-term at least, possibly medium-term, possibly long-term damage to the economy, in which case the question is, what's the price? So what's the point versus what's the price leads you to a, I think, to a gridlock in Parliament which I think you can see increasingly happen, and I've been saying this now for over a year, there is not, in my view, a majority in Parliament for any one Brexit proposition. So at a certain point, there is going to be no recourse except to either have a general election, which would be a mistake for the Conservative Party, of course, to do, or to say, no, we're going to go back to the people and give them the final judgment over whether they prefer the deal that's being offered to them or they prefer to stay. Right. Let's go into the desirability, if you like, of of this in a moment. But on practicality, and you're a a good and skilled process politician, from where Theresa May is now, and we have this gridlock in Parliament, which doesn't look like getting uh, cleaned up. She put forward a a deal, a so-called checkers deal, has left both uh, leave and remain in Parliament very dissatisfied. So what would be the route to another referendum? Would it be to say, we simply can't find a solution, so we're going to put through legislation for that? And in that case, how does it fit around the fixed terms, Parliament Act and the other, the furniture, if you like, of our democracy? I mean, I think once you end up with a gridlock in Parliament so that you can't get an agreement on what the new relationship in Europe is, and Parliament can't agree, then the obvious thing is to send it back to the people and say, look, 
you're going to have to tell us whether in the light of what's happened in the last two years and where we are in Parliament today, you want to proceed with Brexit or you want to stay. I think once Parliament is paralysed, I don't see what alternatives there are. Well, there are three, actually. You crash out without a deal, which would be, I think, a disaster, and I'm sure Parliament would not allow that. Or alternatively, you have a general election. And I cannot see the circumstances in which the Conservative Party would want to have a general election around the Brexit issue. I mean, they got into enough trouble last year doing that. I don't think they'll want to repeat that mistake. And in any event, the logical thing is to say to the people that you, you, you gave the original mandate to do Brexit. It's proved impossible to get a Brexit that even all the Brexiteers agree on, in which case you're going to have to decide for us which way you want to proceed now. I mean, it's actually a very rational thing to do. And I know rationality is not much in vogue in today's politics, but it's a completely rational way of dealing with this issue because otherwise even the Brexit people can't agree as to what Brexit means. So how can you possibly say they've mandated one form of Brexit over another? But let's look at a couple of challenges to that position. A referendum was promised. It was held. It was described by David Cameron as a once-in-a-generation vote. You yourself talked in the early 2000s about putting the European question, albeit it was on constitutional change, but you were thinking of going to the country and saying, can you please make up your minds how close you want to be to the EU or you don't. Both of you flirted with the idea of a referendum. David Cameron went ahead. Did he get it very wrong? Well, it's not. I mean, look, I, I think I was the only person who actually made a speech on Europe of any significance in the 2015 election saying why I thought a referendum was a bad idea. And that in itself tells you something. In the 2015 election, which David Cameron won and won with a majority, Europe wasn't really much of an issue. But anyway, for whatever reasons, I understand the reasons, the referendum was, was held. But the referendum was held as to whether Britain should leave the European Union. The referendum that I was positioning us to, to have over the so-called Lisbon Treaty was a referendum about whether we changed the status quo in order to get closer to Europe. So if the country had voted, if we'd had that referendum, we didn't need to because France and Holland said that they didn't want this constitution anyway. But if we'd voted and we voted no to that, the status quo carries on. The problem with this referendum is you're disentangling 45 years of membership of the European Union, in which particularly economically, we have become intertwined with the continent of Europe in commercial and trading terms. And this is the first time any modern developed country has literally tried to deliberalize its trading system on this scale, given that virtually half our trade is with the European market. So it's a, it's a world away different. And let's be clear, everybody now knows more about this issue than they did back in June 2016. I know more about this issue than I did in June 2016. I was prime minister for 10 years. So we now know that disentangling ourselves from the single market and the customs union is short-term painful. Brexit was sold on the basis that you get an immediate boost of money to the health service and that it would be you know, a relatively painless idea to leave the European Union. It's now whatever else is clear. And, you know, I understand the long-term vision of Britain leaving Europe and going its own way. But whatever else is the case, short-term we now know, one, there's not more money for the health service. Actually, there's a £40 billion bill for leaving. 
Secondly, we've gone from being the fastest growing economy in the G7 to the slowest. Third, our currency is down substantially devalued literally since the day after the referendum. And fourth, short term, if you do a clean break Brexit, you're going to do economic damage. There's no, no one can seriously dispute that. What's the question for this referendum? Well, that is a good question in itself. And it could be one of two different things. I mean, the most obvious thing, frankly, is that it goes back to the people with, if, if there's no agreement as to what a soft Brexit really means, and I don't think there is, I think the, 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 the obvious thing is to go back with a, a simple referendum choice, which is staying possibly within a reformed Europe, by the way, and we can come to that in a moment, or a clean break Brexit, which is what the main people advocating Brexit really want. But you could have, you could have a, a different question, which is you actually have the soft Brexit option that Theresa May is trying to, to, to put forward. You could have that as an alternative to or some form of it. I mean, but these are questions that you can get to at a later stage. But, but surely I mean, if you're advocating for this vote, you must know what you want the vote to be on. Yeah, no, you, you do know what the vote to be on. It'll be stay versus some form of, of leave or possibly an option as to which form of leave you want. But, you know, these are things that... How are you suggesting a multiple choice when you say an option? Well, you, you, you might have three choices. You could have... You could have a simple choice between two alternatives. You might have three, but you can discuss that at a later time. And by no, the way, I'm asking you what you think, though. Would you favour a three, I'm, I'm, a, a multi-part answer? Because I think it, I think it depends, really. If, if, you, if you end up, I think, you know, this is obviously, you, you, you've got to see the circumstances that you get to. But I, I, I just don't believe myself there's really any feeling in the country for what is called a soft Brexit. In other words, you stay linked to Europe, like Norway or Switzerland, in some relationship where you're still abiding by Europe's rules and you've lost your say over those rules. I, I think the country will just say, well, that's the worst of both worlds. But we don't know when people voted, those who voted for Brexit, we don't know how many were hard and many soft. I mean, that's another way that you can... I, I agree, and that's why I say to you, you know, you could make an argument that you have three alternatives, you know, stay, soft, or hard, but... Like eggs. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know what the stay version of that would be. But I think the British people in the end will want to make the final say and to make it in a clear direction. And the problem with this, the soft Brexit, as I've said right from the very beginning, is that in the end, what's the point of Britain getting out of the political structures of Europe and staying in the economic structures with all the obligations, but without the seat at the table. I mean, it's a crazy thing for the country to do. I mean, to put you a bit on the spot, I mean, what would your date be for this? I mean, can advocates of a second referendum like yourself really go around for much longer saying, well, we'd like it sometime. We will sort out the question a bit later. Shouldn't you put your date forward and your idea forward? Well, by the way, it's not us driving this agenda. I mean, this agenda is being driven by a government in more chronic disarray than any government I've literally ever seen um, in my lifetime in the Western world, I would say, in a major developed country. Um, but now you can get to... You may, you, look, you may end up having to postpone Article 50. You may end up being in that position. But the point is, you know... When people say to me, well, why don't you just get on with it, which is a very common thing you'll hear amongst people. What I say to them is, I'm afraid, I'm sorry, this thing's too complicated just to get on with it, because it won't be gone on with in that way. Because until you've resolved where you're going to go in the fundamental questions, and frankly, the government's not, you know, the Chequers statement was an attempt to come down on the side of staying close to Europe. 
I mean, we all know Do you know have that. some sympathy with that? Yeah, no, of course. I, I, look, by the way, let me make one thing clear. I think Theresa May is a well-intentioned person. I think she's got the least enviable job in Western politics today, trying to steer her way through this morass. I have complete sympathy for her at a personal level, and I know how difficult it is to be prime minister. But the trouble is, what she wants won't work. And it won't work because there is no way of squaring this circle. There is no way of staying close to Europe and being part of a frictionless border with Europe and going your own way with your own trade rules. It just, it's literally, and every time the government keeps saying, well, this is what we want, they describe it as a policy. It's not a policy. It's just a, a statement of incompatible objectives. And at some point, and this Czech state was an attempt, really, to pull her side into a, OK, let's stay close to Europe. So I think there are two big questions that I think will dominate Europe at the moment. One is immigration, which is exactly referable to the type of feeling that gave rise to Brexit. And the second is the other unresolved question in Europe, which is how do you make sense of a Europe in which the Eurozone and the countries in the single currency are bound to integrate at a different rate in a different way from the countries outside. So there's lots of different issues that, in a sense, should, according to any sensible view of Europe, given what's been happening, for example, in the Italian election, should result in Europe reforming at the same time as Britain reconsidering. And that would be, frankly, the perfect way out of this. What people. would you do in the event the final say went against your position? Then it's, then it's the end of it. If the British people vote for leave, in circumstances again yeah again where they know they now know exactly what they're going to be getting as a result of that we've had the all the experience of the last couple of years that's an end of it i mean I, i've made this absolutely clear in my view you know once you put her alongside leaving the european union the actual alternative the new relationship once that is a clear vote and the british people then decide look We've heard all the arguments. We still want to leave. That's the end of it. There's no way of getting around this. The country's bitterly and deeply divided. And it is. But I'm, I'm, I'm a sceptic that if you go back and say, look, in the light of what we now know, here's the choice, and you, the people, make the choice, that people are going to consider it an insult to be asked. I don't think they will. Let's talk more broadly about centre politics in the, the guise of our open future season, which is looking at very broadly at the, the future of liberalism and, and the, the centre. You have stood for a certain kind of centre politics, very electorally successful uh, yourself in, in power for a long time in Britain and, and others in Europe, Bill Clinton in, in the US. This feels like something that has been not just under attack, but has been sort of crumbling from within for quite some time. Is centre politics dying or reviving? Um, I don't think it's either dying or reviving. I think it's never gone away. I still think there's a majority for it. I think the Macron election, in a sense, is one indicator of that. But I think the way modern politics works, political parties can be taken over by those from without, outside the centre, and then the choice for the people. I mean, it, the choice for the British people is pretty grim if it's a Brexit-dominated Tory party versus a Corbyn-led Labour party. It's a, I mean, that is a choice of two extreme positions, 
where I think there is a majority of British people that would not really want either of those two things if they had an alternative. Which would then be a case for voting system reform? I don't know whether it's voting system reform, but it's, it's a question of... I mean, my preference is the Labour Party sorts itself out, but I have to say that looks unlikely. Sorts itself out as in returns to the centre ground. Yeah, because... Gets rid of Jeremy Corbyn as leader. Well, look, it's, it's, a, it's not a question of getting rid of him as leader. It's much more fundamental than that. It's a question of whether the Labour Party understands that it, it won power. I mean, remember, we were in power as a Labour government for more than twice as long as the next... Labour government ever. Uh, we were the only political party, Labour Party, to win two consecutive terms, never mind three consecutive this terms. This is 1997 to 2010. Yeah, and we did it from the centre. But by the way, David Cameron won from the centre in 2015. So it's not as if this is, you know, politics that has had its day. And, and you know, one of the fascinating things when you look at the recent OECD report, the country that did best in terms of social mobility from the late 1990s to 2010, the country that did best of all the Western developed countries was Britain. Right? And that was because you had a progressive centre-left party that was keeping the economy strong, but nonetheless making real social changes. And this politics is still the politics that I think it's a combination of people who believe in a strong enterprise sector, believe deeply in social justice, are socially liberal, that is a constituency today, that probably is a new, you know, electoral constituency. And frankly, at the moment, it's pretty much unrepresented. Do you think Jeremy Corbyn could win the next election? Has your view changed on the probability of that? I think it's... Well, look, first of all, you can't say anything's not possible in politics today. And certainly I didn't... I thought Labour would, would, would get badly beaten at the last general election. Now, I think there were many very special factors in that election, not least Brexit, the Conservative manifesto, which was a sort of disaster area, and the way they fought the campaign. So I, you know, personally, I think with this government and this disarray, we should be 15, 20 points ahead, and we're not. But who knows? It's possible. Yeah, it's possible he becomes Prime Minister. And if we look to the context we're speaking in now is just after Helsinki and, and that summit between uh, Donald Trump and uh, Vladimir Putin. Do you think actual harm has been done at that summit? Opinions divide on whether this was just another Trump show as usual or whether you, know, whether you feel that real harm is done to the security architecture of the West. Well, I think you know, President Trump has his own way of doing things for sure and I think it's it's hard right now to see exactly what the implications of it are. But my, my reflection is more to this point, that it shows why it's so important today that Europe stays united. It's why Brexit is not just an economic disaster, it's, it's a geopolitical disaster for Britain and for Europe. And it shows, I'm afraid, that in today's world, the interests of America may lie elsewhere. And I'm not sure this is completely connected to Donald Trump, by the way. I think for the moment, for whatever reasons, America wants to look after itself and its own interests. Its big focus is its relationship with China. You know, this is the, the America-China relationship will be the 
pivotal geopolitical relationship of the 21st century. And I think my reflection is is less to do with critiquing his position, because there are plenty of people who can do that as well as I can. It's really to do with how Europe reacts. And, you know, right at this moment, if Europe wants to stay powerful, it's going to have to stay united and strong economically and politically. And this is the tragedy of what is happening in Europe at the moment. You're known for your international network. How connected are you to the Trump team? I think you met some of his advisors. Yeah, no, I, 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 you know, particularly on the Middle East, where I remain very active on the Israeli-Palestinian question, I remain in contact with them. And, you know, I'm also, because of the work... My with Jared Kushner, specifically, yeah, his son-in-law. Uh, and with, with other people in the team there. And, you know, I, because I'm, my institute is very active in Africa, we, we've got teams in 14 different countries today, um, you know, I'm active with different parts of the American system, and I keep closely in contact with it. Um, you know, I haven't met President Trump himself, but um, yeah, no, of course, I, I stay connected. But you would meet President Trump if the occasion arose? Well, if I had the right thing to discuss um, and he wanted to, it would depend what the issue was. But uh, Jared Kushner, his designated deal with the Middle East, is himself in, in the firing line over the Mueller investigation, isn't he, into the backwash of the allegations of Russian interference in the election and sort of string pulling through the Trump businesses. Yeah, but, you know, for me, the important thing is if I'm working on the Israeli-Palestinian issue and this, these are the people who are designated as dealing with it, it's important you keep in contact with them. And what difference do you think that the, Donald Trump being in the White House and a shift on the way to handle the Middle East has made to the chances, you know, for good or otherwise, of, of achieving anything in the Middle East in terms of a deal? I mean, you know, it's... it's, it's um, as I always say to people, it's hard sometimes to have a rational conversation about Trump's policies because there's so much focus on, on the personality and the character. I think the one thing the administration has correctly understood is that the future to res of, of, of resolution for the Palestinian issue lies in the Israeli-Arab relationship and not simply in the Israeli-Palestinian relationship. I think that they've understood correctly um, and... They've got immensely strong ties with both the Israeli leadership and the Arab leadership. However, I don't think you will get a resolution of the Palestinian question unless you build it from the bottom up as much as trying to negotiate it from the top down. I think the problems are deep politically and economically between Israel and the Palestinian territories, and you know, I could bore you endlessly on that, but I don't think we will, we will get a resolution unless we do it through the Israeli Arab relationship. And by the way, I think this has to start and start urgently with what is happening in Gaza, which is uh, a catastrophe and extremely dangerous and needs to be handled with urgency. We're sitting here in a different office. I think the one I visited you in last time we spoke to you for The Economist asks, you've consolidated a lot of what you do now uh, into this Institute for, for, for Global Change. You have closed pretty much all of your sort of consultancy work. Is that a sign that there had been a bit of Blair sprawl and that you were doing too much? Um, you know, I, I, I've tried to do something since leaving office. Because, you know, you're going to find this with prime ministers and indeed presidents who leave office when they're relatively young and in circumstances where, frankly, people can remain healthy and active much longer. You know, I was never going to end up retiring as prime minister and just going on the speaking circuit. So I have I built a whole series of different organizations and then 
I, I had a business side. I think I explained to you in, in an interview we did a few years back. Its purpose was always in order to be able to fund the the um, the charitable work. The um, so I made two mistakes really. First of all, I think having these different organisations, in retrospect, and this would be my advice to anyone else doing this, put it all in one institute and we have this one not-for-profit institute now which is a much much better way of doing the work we do in the Middle East and Africa around governance uh, counter extremism and coexistence and this new part we're doing which is about renewing the center ground of politics in the West so it's much better done as one institution and secondly frankly people you know with the business side you're always going to get people who misunderstand your motives or misdescribe them and you just get into a run of trouble over it so I think what we did was we transferred what all the substantial reserves we built up in the business side into the institute that allowed us to get these offices going and get moving and now you know we've got around about 250 people working for us in about 30 different countries. So if I was teasing you I could say you kind of come around to the view that we discussed then that there was a bit of a problem between the balance of mammon and good works in your life. Um, well it was it was more to do with the way it was could be presented or misrepresented but but yeah no I, I i i if i was doing it again i'd set it up as it is as, as it is now but you know no one's ever tried to build an organization as a former prime minister and the thing that people never understand is that you stop being prime minister right your infrastructure goes everything goes right? and you may have a name but you are nothing else so you've got to go and fundraise for it you've got to either make the money or raise the money you know this is as I say a large organization operates in many different countries and it takes a lot to build, but the work we're doing here is is really uh, fantastic. And I think in time we will, I hope we can lead to a shift of global politics or help in a shift of global politics back to support for what I call the open-minded view of the world, um, the international liberal order and the politics that says globalization is actually basically a good thing, but you need to deal with its risks in order to access its opportunities. You're 65 now, really sort of only 65, I should say, really, because you know, this has been quite a long time since you were Prime Minister and you, you've done a lot since, but it is a good time to, to look back. What do you regret? Um, well, I always think one of the interesting things is, is you, go, you stop being Prime Minister, you go out into the world and you learn an immense amount. So I've learned a huge amount in the last 10 years about how the world works, which you just, you know, if you're in politics, especially I came in 1997, I'd never been a minister before. You're prime minister, okay, it's 10 years, you learn a huge amount. So there are things that I can regret in domestic policy around reform. I think the biggest regret post 9-11 was misunderstanding the depth of the problem of sort of radical Islamist influences. And therefore, when we, th we thought when we changed regimes in Afghanistan and Iraq, gave the people a chance to improve their lives, then surely this would work. But there were many forces that were trying to disrupt it, as they still are today. Um, but, you know, I also look back on the things that we did that are on the more positive side, the big changes in society that we introduced in the UK, you know, the radical reductions in poverty, the improvements in schools and hospitals, the minimum wage, the Northern Ireland peace process, bringing the Olympics to the UK. I mean, there's a lot that we can be proud of, as well as obviously, I don't think anyone's in power for 10 years without there being things that people disagree with. Tony Blair, thank you very much for joining The Economist Asks this week. Thank you. Well, we'd love to know what you think. Should Britain have another vote on Brexit? What should the question be? Let us know by email to radio at economist.com 
or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And if you'd like to subscribe, do go to economist.com slash radio offer, 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Anne McElvoy. In London, this is The Economist. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.